I'm Floyd Hall, and this is a statement as well as an invitation that relates to legacy. The Atlanta Legacy Makers Initiative and this podcast in particular are all about celebrating the legacy of how Atlanta got to be the city that we know it as today, primarily through the lives of mayors Ivan Allen Jr. and Maynard Jackson. But I want to remind each of you listening, if you live in Atlanta or if you're from Atlanta or if you love Atlanta, you are part of the legacy of this city. You have some ownership in that legacy. And I invite you, I beg you to let your voice be heard as it relates to the type of city that you want Atlanta to be. We are collecting oral histories for this project in the form of audio and video. And I invite you to visit the website and let your voice be heard. Whether it's a reflection on civil rights history or a response to social justice issues of today. Visit atllegacymakers.com and click submit your story and follow the instructions. This moment is the continuation of Atlanta's legacy, and we welcome your voice to be part of it. With Ivan Allen Jr., it's not a small moment, I think, that comes to mind, but it's the recollection of him describing a very big moment in Atlanta history, and that was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis. And Ivan Allen told me the story about being at his home on, on Northside Drive in Buckhead and uh, seeing the news report on television, Martin Luther King Jr. shot in Memphis. And my, Jack, uh, excuse me, Allen was the mayor at that time. And so his initial instinct was, I must go to Mrs. King. Uh, and he made a phone call to Coretta Scott King. And at that point, Dr. King, it was known only that he had been shot. He was still alive. And uh, Allen said he was on his way. So he, he drove to, to Mrs. King's home. Uh, and he did not go alone because his wife, Louise Allen, uh, said to her that she wanted to go with him. And, uh, you know, Louise Allen has a great bloodline of the South, you know, from the Inmans and uh, cotton traders. And she was, she had a ladylike grandeur about her. She was the classic steel magnolia. But she said to Ivan Allen at this moment, a lot of times a woman can do better with another woman. And so together they drove in the rain in April 1968 to uh, Dr. King's home to, with the idea of taking Coretta Scott King to the airport uh, to, and to smooth her passage to get to Memphis to be with her husband. And uh, Alan narrated it in a, in a very straightforward way, which was typical for him. I mean, he was not outwardly emotional. He was um, raised in the elite white Atlanta Piedmont driving club. He, he had a certain pedigree himself. 
And they rush to the airport, escorted by Atlanta police. And there's a moment when, as Alan told me, when he gets a phone call. And Coretta Scott King is taken by Dora McDonald, Dr. King's secretary, into an Eastern Airlines woman's lounge, a restroom. And Ivan Allen answers the page, and there and then he is told that Dr. King has died. And he asks for a, a, a reconfirmation, and the Eastern Airlines official in Memphis calls and says, yes, I can affirm and reaffirm to you that Dr. King is dead. We're trying to furnish you the information as quickly as possible. His wife, Louise Allen, knocks on the uh, door of the ladies' lounge, and there, right there, are Coretta King and Dora McDonald in each other's arms, weeping. And Mayor Allen steps in with Mrs. Allen. And Mayor Allen um, says, Mrs. King, I have to inform you that Dr. King is dead. And of course, it was clear that Coretta knew at that point already. And Louise Allen acts instinctively and just pulls out a, a, a paper towel and hands it to Mrs. King for her tears. And Mayor Allen, um, showing his, his pedigree, takes the paper towel from his wife's hand and pulls out his silk handkerchief from his breast pocket and hands it to Mrs. King. And um, at that point, Mrs. King decides that she's, she's going to go back home since Dr. King has passed away. She needed to be with her children. And Mayor Allen uh, went back to uh, Mrs. King's house and there in her living room, watch Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States, address the nation as riots were beginning to break out in cities uh, across the land. A really powerful moment told by Mayor Allen in his usual understated way. Welcome to the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast. I'm Floyd Hall here in downtown Atlanta, underneath the Riches Atlanta clock at the corner of Alabama Street and Broad Street, directly across from the Five Points Marta Station. This is episode five, which corresponds to part five of the Gary M. Pomerantz book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, A Saga of Race and Family. You heard Gary's voice in the open, revealing some backstory on writing the book. Part five of Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn is entitled Civil Rights. And in this episode, we'll get some perspective from Doug Shipman of Woodruff Art Center and Dr. Todd Mishney of Georgia Tech. Now, riches is what a lot of people like to call old school Atlanta. And in this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, Riches becomes an important location in the narrative of the civil rights movement in Atlanta. And while Riches has been gone from Atlanta for quite some time, this clock, which spells out Riches Atlanta on the face of the clock, is one of the last remnants of that department store's legacy in the city.
Now, switching gears to this episode's discussion. Doug Shipman is the current CEO of Woodruff Arts Center and the founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Doug joins us to share some reflections on this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. Doug, how are you? I'm great. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's an honor to be able to take this incredible section of this book and talk about it with you. Let's sort of start with some general impressions. You know, as you as you dive into this text, as you think through this era of Atlanta, if you will, what are some of the first things that come to mind for you um, as someone who has spent lots of time in this city and has thought a lot about civil rights in Atlanta? Well, I think, you know, the, the first thing that, that strikes me and it always strikes me when I think about this period is the drama. I mean, this is this is almost like reading a movie script. You have these incredible people um, going through this uh, historical period, you know, presidential candidates show up and and people are going to jail and these tense things are happening and students versus the old line, the old guard. It's just this incredible drama that plays out over these years. And two, I think what also struck me in revisiting the text this time was how much inequality issues, housing issues, wealth gap issues were front and center when it comes to the political discourse. And uh, given that those issues are very prevalent in our city and state discourses now, it was really striking how some of the passages read as if they could be on today's headlines. Um, That was really um, quite interesting to me, uh, revisiting it uh, this time around. Well, Doug, you mentioned some passages that jumped out to you. Let's let's start there. If you could point to a couple of passages that you feel really illustrate um, how those times sort of captured, or I, I guess how this text really sort of captures that moment in time for Atlanta. Mm. Yeah, so the, the first one that jumped out to me, and I, and I have a personal connection with this one, is uh, is at the, at the bottom of 267 and, and the top of 268. This is the scene in which... There's a, a, a ongoing negotiation about trying to desegregate uh, riches and other eating establishments in Atlanta. Uh, and a lot of people are involved, including Dr. King's father, Lonnie King, who's no relation, who's one of the student leaders uh, from Morehouse, um, John Calhoun, who's at the NAACP. And there's this moment where they're basically trying to come to a deal around desegregation. Uh, and uh, there's this great passage where Dr. King wags his finger at Lonnie King and says, this is the best agreement we can get. And Lonnie King doesn't want to sign the agreement because he doesn't want to wait. He doesn't want to wait a few months. And during the recess, it says black leaders cornered Lonnie King in the hallway, Clement Borders and Hill urging him to sign the agreement. John Calhoun also came by and said, I've been segregated all my life. I don't see where another six months is going to make any difference. All of this is happening in the in the halls of the Commerce Club, which is this this business establishment, this private club that that many of the business and civic leaders of Atlanta use. My connection to this is I actually had lunch in that club one day with Lonnie King and with John Calhoun, the third John Calhoun Jr.'s son. And Lonnie King relayed the story to John's son, 
about that moment. And Lonnie said that the reason he ultimately agreed was because of what John Calhoun had said to him, because he in that moment was deferring to his elder. And I think to me, illustrating this very complex relationship between elders and up and coming leaders, between generations, between establishment figures, you know, whether it be chambers of commerce heads or or presidents of universities and student frontline activists, I thought that passage illustrated that complexity because here you have Daddy King saying, sign the agreement now. The student leader saying, I don't want to sign the agreement. Of course, we have other scenes in the book where Dr. King is, you know, being arrested for the first time during this period. I just think that intergenerational challenge is one that illustrates this period in so many ways so well. And that really struck me in that passage. In this current day and age, I think that our view of the civil rights movement feels pretty, pretty flat sometimes. Um, Mm. I think we know the general narrative of what happened and how things got to a certain point. But what I think is brought up by this text is there were lots of negotiations and lots of meetings and lots of, of discord and lots of um, just dialogue about how to get to this point with some of the adversaries, quote unquote, all there together, having, you know, having to hash it out. Um, I think that's the part that I didn't oftentimes think about as, as, you know, a young man growing up thinking about the uh, civil rights movement. Well, I think that's a very good point. You know, Andy Young and I talked about this period many times. One one time he said to me that, in his view, the biggest difference between Atlanta and other places was that in Atlanta, the relationships between uh, various members of the African-American community and various members of the white community, especially at the leadership levels, existed prior to the civil rights movement. And thus, when this, this period came, there was a relationship base from which to negotiate from. And so, and, and so it wasn't the first time people were coming together. They had already known each other to some extent, had already met in other ways. And so they could negotiate as opposed to a Birmingham or a Selma or a Montgomery where you really didn't have those relationships that existed. And even think about the fact that the Commerce Club is hosting this. That type of club in a lot of other cities would have been strictly segregated. But in this scenario, it could host in you know this very rarefied air these kinds of negotiations. So I do agree that across this period, you see negotiation after negotiation after negotiation. You also see these shifting alliances. There's this other great scene, of course, when uh, Ivan Allen goes to a community meeting and, the, and it's almost like a church service and the congregation shouts down Daddy King and, and Ivan Allen Jr. is talking about how this, before he's mayor, he's talking about how he's very afraid. And then Dr. King stands up and admonishes the crowd and says, we can't be the ones to break an agreement. Let the white people break the agreement. And basically, you know, basically kind of uh, calms them and says, we have to do this. And Ivan Allen, that changes forever the way that he sees Dr. King, because he sees Dr. King as willing to basically, you know, take a stand even in uh, an African-American setting. And so I think these shifting alliances, too, are something that that this book really gives you a sense of. Indeed, indeed. Well, how about uh, one more section, Doug? Yeah, so there's a there's this this one small phrase on on 304 that says um, the Allens and the Dobbses have flourished on opposite sides of a segregated city for 65 years. Their paths never crossing. They'd walk different streets, eaten at different restaurants, and prayed at different churches. Jim Crow guaranteed as much. 
The nation had waged the Spanish-American War, two world wars, and the Korean War, yet the Allens and the Dobbses lived parallel lives in parallel worlds, sometimes no more than a few blocks separating them. Now, I was struck by that because it also brought back another conversation that I had actually with, with Andrew Young, and he said that the, that the thing that people um, underestimated about Atlanta was the impact of the HBCUs. Because the HBCUs had been established in the, in the late 19th century, multiple generations of African-American people had moved to Atlanta, often from elsewhere, been educated, and often had stayed. And so you had multiple generations, like the Dobbses, of educated African-American people who were ready for leadership prior to the civil rights movement, during the civil rights movement, and then following the civil rights movement. And so that parallelism is both a negative that, that this speaks to, of separation of, of all the, the horrible aspects of segregation of Jim Crow, but there also was African-American wealth created. There were African-American law practices, doctor's offices, banks, and that parallel nature is something that Atlanta really had uh, in a way that many other cities didn't have. And so this this notion of the parallelism and that you could have this very powerful African-American family that's producing leaders like this, um, you know, the, the Allens, I think is really indicative of a lot of what's here. And even, you know, past the section that I talk about, but when Maynard Jackson ascends, you know, it's just, it's so interesting how that that black power base is there but it's not just there post segregation it's been there for you know by that time um almost a hundred years it's been developing and so that parallelism to me is just so interesting when you when you try to understand why atlanta works the way it does now doug i'll add to that because i think how i read that in addition to what you just said is that atlanta and I don't know how many people really realize this um, if you don't live here, for those who are listening who don't live here. But um, Atlanta is not a terribly large city in town. It's interesting how you can have these two distinct realities within a relatively small geographical confine. Well, I think that's true. And I think in, in uh, one one thing that that is, uh, enforced or helped everyone to to enforce that as you know, many of the street names change as they cross certain thresholds. So you would have a street, the same street contiguously running, but on one side of, a, of an intersection, it would be, you know, uh, one name. And on the other side, it would be another name. And a lot of that was to clearly demarcate where were the areas that were prominently African-American and where were the areas that were white. Lonnie King um, once told me that it was very clear when he was a young man where he could go and where he could not go. And in fact, when he was a Morehouse student and he would come to Auburn Avenue um, to the Butler Street YMCA for things, um, so he had to cross from west to east. He knew which way to go in order to, to in essence, stay safe. And so you're right. I think in a, a relatively small geography, it was not just parallel in the good sense, but it was also parallel in the bad sense in that, you know, there were certain areas that, in essence, were off limits. Um, to African-American people, and everybody sort of knew it and, and even renaming streets, so it was very clear. Well, Doug, there was one more part of this of this part of the book that you mm -hmm. highlighted that you thought was really indicative of uh, Atlanta then as well as Atlanta now. Yeah, so page 312 really, really stood out to me. It, 
about halfway through the page. It's quoting from the the Daily World, one of the African American newspapers, and um, and it says uh, the real problem is that of inadequacy of housing. The barriers are down, but the basic problem continues to exist. Uh, and it goes down a little bit further, uh, and it says John Kennedy, in an address to Congress on February 28, 1963, noted that 100 years have passed since Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Blacks in America, Kennedy said, now lived in despair. They earned half as much as whites, lived seven years less, and were twice as likely to become unemployed. It was time, quote, for a sober assessment of our failures, end quote. You know, this this notion of the, the fundamental inequities around livelihood, economics, housing, employment that were so prevalent in the in this time period. They're throughout Ivan Allen's administration. It's really, you know, the great um, shortcoming of Allen's administration was his inability to really move any progress when it came to poverty and housing. And the, some of those stats are, are spelled out in this um, section of the book. And that's those are the same issues we're talking about today. There's been a study recently that within two miles, one zip code in on the west side of Atlanta, that's predominantly African-American, has a you know a 10 to 12 year life expectancy difference from a zip code two miles to the north that's predominantly white. Um, we see unemployment numbers, we see wealth numbers that are completely different by race. You know that uh, uh, intransigence of those issues, 50 plus years later from this time period we're talking about in the civil rights section, is striking. It really is striking, um, and I think it continues to dominate in many ways the city's political landscape and the issues that, you know, Mayor Bottoms has talked about and the issues that just are in the front of policymaking or the lack of policymaking still today. You know, it's it's interesting how, I guess for me, it, it highlighted how long it takes things to change, or I guess mm. how much political will you have to have to make those changes. Um, I think in this book, we we get to see different mayors take different approaches to changing things and where there's the will to change something usually in atlanta we can really get things done if we really want things to happen whether that means um the airport for example or whether that means mm -hmm. bringing pro sports to atlanta or whether that means the olympics um what we've seen and what we see in this book in particular is that when we can really get everyone on the same page and pulling together with a certain vision, I guess, um, we can really make change. And I guess when I think about the lack of housing or affordable housing and sort of the, the disparities um, between white and black as highlighted by that section that you, that you, that you read, it just feels like it makes me just think about, you know, where does the political will lie to really address that in Atlanta, because we've 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 shown that we can do it when we really put our minds to it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think the other the other thing that the book uh, very well illustrates is that you know the business community in Atlanta has always played a bigger role than just business. 
um, whether it is Robert Woodruff's role, which is throughout this section of the book and, and throughout the book, and his really philanthropically, but also politically having a, a huge influence, you know, called the boss. And, and, and in many ways, that was true. Ivan Allen himself comes out of the business world. Um, Maynard Jackson and how many, as you illustrate, how many business levers he ends up uh, uh, using to try to move his agenda along, whether it's contracting or the airport or other things. But the role of business is just a huge aspect of Atlanta. And I think in some ways, the business community, like in this period, ends up being a positive when it comes to desegregation. And at key moments, the business community is on the right side of history. But in some ways, the business community hasn't really in the, you know, in the arc of this book, the business community doesn't say we have to eradicate poverty. And so we're going to put all of our will and, and our political um, you know, acumen behind that. Um, and so I, I do think it's a question of political will. And it's also a question of, you know, the, the relationship between the, the civic political world and the business world and how there are some issues that are more comfortable to get alignment on and some issues that are much harder to get alignment on. You mentioned Robert Woodruff. Robert Woodruff is sort of in the shadows throughout much of this book, but I think his his impact in the city, I mean, even going to the actual intersection of Peachtree and Auburn Avenue, there's Woodruff Park right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's pretty um, glaring, um, his impact and his his uh, ability to sort of, you know, affect change in, in many ways in Atlanta throughout his his life. And given that you are, at the Robert Woodruff Art Center. I wanted you to maybe comment uh, not on really Robert Woodruff per se, but I think shifting it somewhat to thinking about the arts. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the early challenges that Ivan Allen had once he got into office was dealing with the tragedy of the Orly crash. And even now in 2020, uh, people still think and comment on the impact of the orally crash on Atlanta's arts community. And so if you could, you know, if you have any thoughts on that, I would love for you to share maybe some some additional thoughts or perspective on how Atlanta's arts community, uh, mm. you know, has been shaped or impacted even by that point in time um, with that with that incident. Yeah. So 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 two points, actually. Let me let me start just with a comment on on Robert Woodruff's philanthropy, and I think philanthropy more broadly in Atlanta. You know, Atlanta is a relatively young city. Atlanta and Birmingham, you know, in the 50s were the same size, and then Atlanta goes on this exponential growth curve, really starting in the late 50s, early 60s, that has continued through 2020. A lot of Atlanta's philanthropy, and Robert Woodruff was an example of this, was trying to build institutions that would make Atlanta a national and global city not necessarily because of a deep affection for you know <clears throat> a particular kind of institution and so we see philanthropy goes to emory philanthropy goes to the hbcus philanthropy builds the woodruff arts center not public money right and that these aren't these aren't government grants um these are this is private philanthropy but really trying to build the institutions that other big cities have and that they typically already built because they had steel money or oil money or banking money, other kinds of money. And so Atlanta as a younger city had to play catch up. What's interesting about arts, particularly in the Orly situation. Um, so the Orly crash happens uh, in you know, 1962, and it is devastating uh, from a philanthropic and an arts 
perspective, over 100 people perish. So many um, of them are leaders in the arts community that it really takes an entire generation of leadership um, with it at the same time. Ivan Allen had a bond referendum that included funding, public funding for an art center that was on the ballot later that year, the same year, and it failed. Even in the shadow of the Orly tragedy, the ability to rally public money for the arts still wasn't there. And so then Ivan Allen and Robert Woodruff and Richard Rich, who's in the book, who led the effort to raise the money, end up using um, several years in the 1960s, leading up to 68, to build the Woodruff Arts Center to be a memorial to those who died at Orly, but also to be a big art center to put Atlanta on the map nationally. And so I think that that, that Orly legacy showcases how arts often work and how broadly philanthropy works in Atlanta, which is it's usually a private effort, not a public one. And it usually has an enormous amount of uh, uh, impact from the business community, um, both from a leadership perspective and from a philanthropic perspective. Um, I think the other thing that I would simply say is, um, you know, from a from a broader arts perspective, the the art center and the broader arts community um, took a long time to actually find a way to to involve voices across the entire spectrum of race and of experience. You know, the, the I'm very proud that the, the High Museum now has one of the largest collections of um, self-taught artists and one of the largest collections of African-American art. But, you know, that really didn't start as a full thrust until the late 80s and 90s. Um, so it wasn't as if, you know, as the as this was all built, that it also was kind of reflective of um, Atlanta t in totality. I think, it, like a lot of sectors, the arts have played catch up over time where the big institutions have not been as reflective of the African-American community and broader diversity uh, as they could have been or should have been. I guess that makes me think now, as we have the legacy of Robert Woodruff and uh, Dick Rich in the early days, um, how do we see that model, quote unquote, updated in in this current time? So I think there are a few things that we've seen. Uh, I think most importantly to, to kind of understand Atlanta's philanthropic scene, there was an enormous amount of wealth created through the 80s or so in Atlanta, um, big companies that were growing uh, and new companies that were formed. But then the, the big 90s and early 2000s wealth creation engines weren't really centered in Atlanta, whether they be high tech or biotech or investment banking, hedge funds, we didn't have a lot of that in Atlanta. So there's a bit of a generation that, of wealth creation that we see in other cities, especially when it comes to arts and culture, that, that really didn't happen in Atlanta. Now we have younger companies that I think we're starting to see, uh, you know, them starting to grow, and that will be a generation of wealth. So one is, I think you've had a little bit of a, of a trough. Two, I think that um, generally corporate, corporate folks um, in Atlanta understand that because we don't have a lot of public funding um, for arts and culture, that the corporate space does more. Um, but we've had, you know, sort of uh, what I would call um, ebbs and flows as to how centered certain corporate leaders are in Atlanta or how much they just have their headquarters here where their, their real emphasis or even where they live is someplace else. And that makes a huge difference. If a CEO and the company are both headquartered in Atlanta and that's a real kind of connection, 
then that's a, that's something that drives a lot of involvement in philanthropy. That's what you see in this book. A lot of business leaders have deep grounding to Atlanta. If you just have the corporate headquarters here, but it's just moved here for tax reasons, not so much. The question to how do we get business leaders today, especially of newer companies, to understand Atlanta uh, and being involved, especially in arts and culture. One, I think the programs like Leadership Atlanta, um, which grew out of and it's talked about in the book a little bit. I think those programs help people who are new to Atlanta to understand Atlanta's legacy, Atlanta's uniqueness. So I think that you see those kinds of programs often are the gateway in which a new leader or somebody who's established a company understands Atlanta's legacy. Um, but I think the other is um, the the notion of Atlanta and the art scene has expanded vastly over the last 50 years since the Art Center was established. You now have a lot of different kinds of arts organizations. You have more theater organizations in Atlanta per capita than almost any city in the country. And so you have a lot of different ways in which people can plug in. I think that's a good thing. But I think that it also means that this notion that, that the book sort of gets to that there are you know maybe 10 people that are sort of running the city. I don't think the city quite works like that anymore. I think it's much more diffused. Uh, and I think there are a lot of different ways in which people are plugging in uh, and whether it comes to arts and culture or more broadly than we've seen before. And so I think that it, in part, it's about trying to make sure that leaders find something they're passionate about and then finding the ways in which they can support it going forward. Well, Doug, as we wrap up, I wanted to sort of end it um, and bringing it back to this notion of civil rights, because that's what this chapter or this part of the book is about. I guess thinking back to your time at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, how do we update or I guess re-engage the civil rights story in Atlanta? Well, one, I think that um, I think what's important to remember about the civil rights movement is that so many leaders were so young. I mean, they just were young people, whether they be college students or even Dr. King. I mean, Dr. King wins the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, you know, at 34 years old. I mean, that's not an old man at all. That's a, that's a relatively young person. Um, and so one is, I think that, that we often see the civil rights legacy in oral histories or in black and white footage. And I think it's really important that we try to think about it in, in color and in youth and, and what that means, because it's much more accessible for younger people or for people who didn't live the time period to, to have a personal connection with it. So I think that's one. I think two is that um, it is to your point about um, how it actually happened in Atlanta. It did involve protests and it involved politics and it involved um, uh, a negotiation and it involved the business community. I really, it is a multifaceted story. I think Atlanta's civil rights legacy is that everybody had an opportunity to participate. Not that everybody did, they certainly didn't, but everybody had the, the entree point. This isn't just one particular story and it wasn't just one particular story of race either. Ivan Allen, obviously as a white man, is finding his way to participate and to not always be right, but to be on the right side of it. So I think Atlanta gives an, an avenue by which anybody can find their way in. And then finally, I think the, the issue is that we have to understand the many of the civil rights leaders who go on, or even Maynard Jackson later in this book, at civil rights in Atlanta's parlance, 
doesn't just mean African-American freedom struggle. It also then becomes issues of women. It becomes issues of anti-apartheid. It becomes issues of economic justice. It becomes issues of LGBTQ rights. So many of the civil rights leaders that are in this section of the book, Julian Bond, Andrew Young, Hosea Williams, they end up going on to struggle for broader human rights. And I think we do ourselves a disservice, but we especially do them a disservice when we only lock them into the view of the issues they were fighting for from 1960 to 1969. They went on to fight for all kinds of human rights issues. And I think that opens up that legacy to be used by all kinds of folks today. Thank you to Doug Shipman. We learn a lot about Ivan Allen Jr.'s tenure as mayor in Atlanta in this part of where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And while that may seem like long lost history, we actually have a way to access some of that history in the digital era. Georgia Tech professor Dr. Todd Michney was one of the principal archivists of the Ivan Allen Jr. digital collection, and he shares some insight on that collection and how you can access its materials. Well, my name is Todd Mishney. I'm an assistant professor of history at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology in the School of History and Sociology. I'm an urban historian. Uh, my first book is on Cleveland's black middle class. Actually from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, came to Atlanta in 2015. And my work is evolving to focus on the city of Atlanta, particularly interested in African-American-owned construction companies, uh, Walter Aiken uh, in particular. But this Ivan Allen archive that we've created uh, has been one way to, for me to get a leg up on the city's history. So as an urban historian, I've really welcomed the opportunity to get to know the, uh, the documents and to gain some understanding of the city's history. So how did you get involved with the archive initially? What was, what was the initial connection point for you? Well, when I came here in 2015, the papers had been newly uh, processed. That's, that means that the archive had uh, preserved them, described them, made them available to the public. They'd only been rediscovered in the basement of City Hall in 2012. So that means that for all the great work that's been done on Ivan Allen, like um, where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, uh, research didn't, didn't have access to these actual papers until very recently. And when I came along, um, they were sitting in the Keenan Research Center at, at, the, at the Atlanta History Center but most people still weren't aware of them. And for people who haven't done research in physical archives, it, it can be tedious. It can be a little daunting for a non-specialist. Uh, as a professionally trained historian, this is something that seems very um, straightforward to me, but I know, especially my students, when you tell them, you know, we've got, in this case, I think it's about 60 something boxes of records how are you going to find what you are looking for uh, if you've never used a collection like that before? These are basically the office files of the mayor. 
so we had the idea to scan a portion of these. Um, we scanned about one quarter of the existing records. Uh, that would be 10,000 documents, about 30,000 pages. Uh, and so we negotiated this with the Atlanta History Center. That was largely through the initiative of uh, Dean uh, Jack Royster. And she was able to build on the relationship that Georgia Tech has with the Atlanta History Center and also with the family. Uh, Ivan Allen, uh, Mary Ivan Allen's two grandsons have been very supportive of this project. And as a former archivist, I was extremely skeptical they would allow us to come in and scan these papers. Um, you know, archives tend to be very possessive of their collections and they don't want them to get out of order or damaged. And uh, I just was surprised. Uh, but I, I guess I should have known with all, all the great connections that um, Dean Royster's built in the community that she'd be able to uh, negotiate this. So we had two student interns scan the papers uh, over the summer of 2016, I believe. And then we've made them available uh, online to anyone who would like to do research in these papers. How would you help people understand the best way to engage with the archive? Uh, you can just do keyword searches and find documents that are relevant. Uh, we've also made a list of folders so that you uh, can use that kind of existing organization within the papers. If you're interested, for example, in Lester Maddox, who was Mayor uh, Allen's uh, opponent, they were both running for mayor in 1961. Allen won, then Lester Maddox um, famously or infamously was the um, owner of the Pickwick restaurant who opposed the Civil Rights Act, later became governor of Georgia. There's, uh, I'm looking right now, there's, uh, looks like seven folders just on Lester Maddox. So uh, we've tried to make it easy and have different ways into the collection. We even have a custom-built uh, custom interface where you can, um, you can search by person, you can search by name of organization, and it'll show you the connections between those different named entities. So I often uh, demonstrate this search interface that we've created and actually won some grant funding from the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities uh, to create. So if you wanted to see how uh, different individuals were connected around a certain organization, for example, the Model Cities uh, program uh, or uh, uh, something like the Community Relations Commission, you could actually uh, it, it, the computer knows what constitutes an organization versus an individual versus a place. And you can do some more targeted searches like that so that you can reduce the numbers of hits you can get. So we've tried to create different ways into the collection that might make more sense um, depending on who you are, what your interests are, uh, what's most familiar to you. And um, I'm happy to provide all those uh those links for people who would like to explore the collection. In fact, I should mention we did um, a really uh, interesting event this past November where we invited uh, members of community organizations to come in and conduct searches on the collection and to explore the papers because uh, we're really welcoming people to, to come and get familiar with the uh, Mayor Ivan Allen archive.
and to see what they can find in there. There's really um, there's kind of a joy in just being able to pull back the curtain and look behind the scenes and see what these what these records look like. Um, and so we were trying to give that give that experience to you know people out in the community and see what what they might find in the in the records what might seem important to them. So for example, we had people from the Summerhill neighborhood organization come and they're very interested in what the decision making process was like behind building the stadium that impacted their neighborhood so profoundly. Um, people had different interests. Other people were interested in Marta. Um, some of the students found some really interesting um, records in there, something like a rat control program. Um, they just weren't really aware of just how big of a problem of uh, rat control was in the 1960s. And one student did a whole presentation just on what they could find about the, the city's rat control efforts of the time. So you never really know what people are going to find in there. There's a lot of different information in 30,000 pages worth of mayoral records. Todd, this has been really fascinating information. Um, and I guess I would love for you as we as we wrap up, um, I mean, you kind of touched on it somewhat in our conversation, but I would love for you to give any general thoughts you have on what you want people to understand about the importance of preserving history in this way and in doing this type of work. Absolutely. Well, history is so important to be preserved because what we're talking about here is the raw materials of, of history or the primary sources and historical interpretations change, right? Um, very often we're looking at history through our own lens of the present. Uh, as time goes on and we get more distance from the events as they took place, new questions may come to mind. New other sources may turn up as people either donate their papers or give interviews or, uh, for example, the U.S. Census um, uh, remained sealed for 72 years. That's the, that was the average lifespan at the time uh, that this uh, restriction came about. So, you know, you, every, every 10 years you get a release of census records, and the next one coming up is going to be 1950. It's going to be released in um, uh, 2022. So history is like a conversation that is ongoing, and there, there's never really a closed book unless there's no more sources that come to light. I guess there are some topics that fall from um, fall out of interest. But Atlanta, I think Atlanta, how it's been growing so uh, so quickly in the past several decades, what, what we're really looking at when we look at the Ivan Allen records is how did we get where we are today? The kinds of growth strategies used by the city in recent decades the kinds of um, controversies that have come up over affordable housing, over displacement, over um, destruction of historic buildings and historic communities. This all, this all really starts in this period under Ivan Allen, and you can get a sense of what was the thinking. How did Ivan Allen, what, how did he want to move the city in what direction? What kind of image of Atlanta was he seeking to promote? that kind of brings us to our present today. And so that's what makes these 
paper is really so fascinating is it it tells us how did we get to the modern Atlanta, the international city that it is today, from really what was a kind of regional, um, quite small city at the start of the period. And so that's why I think that we have to be aware um, and, and always kind of have to question our history a little bit. Um, it's good to challenge the past and revisit um, revisit these kinds of uh, decisions because, you know, what it means for us in our present day or what it might mean in the future could be very different from what it meant at the time. Thank you to Todd Mishney. Thank you to Doug Shipman. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Atlanta Legacy Makers podcast, and I hope you're enjoying the book, Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn. Part five is in the books, pun intended, and next up is part six entitled Black City Government. So let's keep reading and we'll talk about it in the next episode. Until then, I'm Floyd Hall, and forever, I love Atlanta. Atlanta Legacy Makers is an initiative led by Central Atlanta Progress, and the City of Atlanta. Special thanks to author Gary M. Pomerantz, lecturer at Stanford University in the graduate program in journalism. We heard Gary at the very beginning of this episode talking about some of the backstory of writing where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And we're thankful and thrilled to have Gary's perspective throughout this project. Special thanks to our amazing partners, Atlanta Downtown Improvement District, Atlanta Public Schools, Constellations, Gene Kansas Commercial Real Estate, the Ivan Allen College of Liberal Arts at Georgia Tech, One Atlanta, and Supporter Report. Atlanta Legacy Makers is hosted and produced by Floyd Hall. That's me. Music by Smith & Cash. Last but not least, thank you, Atlanta.